0: Good morning, everyone. I'm Angela Davis, and this is NPR News. Thanks for joining us. I want you to imagine getting a phone call that changes your life, a phone call that says you have breast cancer. One in eight women in the U.S. will get that call at some point. The median age at diagnosis is 62, but breast cancer diagnoses are on the rise for women under 40, and a cancer diagnosis in your 20s or 30s is typically more aggressive you're more likely to die. It's more likely to come back. This hour, we're talking about breast cancer. The medical discoveries that have been made uh, about breast cancer increasingly, uh, we know that it's survivable. The mysteries that continue to make it the second leading cause of cancer death in women. We'll talk about it all. And I want to hear from you, too. Are you a breast cancer survivor? What's the story behind your diagnosis and treatment? How has your cancer experience continued to affect you as a survivor? Join the conversation. The phone lines are open. You can call us at six five one two two seven six thousand or... Let's bring in our guest. Laura Gutierrez is here. Laura is a breast cancer survivor who was diagnosed in 2021. She lives in Blaine, and she's here again in the studio with me. Hi, Laura. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Angela. Thank you for having me. And Laura's oncologist is on the line with us, Dr. Melissa Sherman. Dr. Sherman is a medical oncologist and hematologist with Health Partners. Welcome to the program, Dr. Sherman.
1: Hi, nice to be here.
0: All right. Good morning to you. Laura, um, first of all, congratulations on your continued survivorship. You look wonderful. You were 36 years old when you were diagnosed back in 2021. So take your time, but take us back to that day, your diagnosis day.
2: Uh, The day I got diagnosed officially, I think I knew ahead of time. Um, I found the breast lump in my breast. Um, A lot of us you're kind of not prepared for it under 40. You don't have mammograms at that age. Um, I self-diagnosed. I Some of my symptoms included um, a big lump that you could feel eventually. I think it grew from zero to eight centimeters in six months. That's mm-hmm. how fast-growing the type of cancer I have. Um, I also had some clear discharge, like I was breastfeeding when I was not pregnant. Um, lucky for me, I have a great um, general practitioner who was like, yep, I feel this. There's something wrong. Let's get it tested. What a lot of people don't know with breast cancer under 40, and I found out was that it does not always show up on a mammogram. So I very well could have gone in and done the mammogram and nothing showed and it could have continued to grow. I actually didn't know that. I know you don't until you kind of get into these situations. And uh, luckily, my doctor was like, nope, there's something wrong. Let's go. Um, I had a ultrasound. It also didn't show up in an ultrasound. What When it showed up was a breast MRI. Mm-hmm. Um, and the day I got the call was from a, a local oncologist, and he was so excited because I was rare. Um, and so the, for him
0: as a medical uh, professional, and like this was, I guess, exciting is the probably the right word. That's what you him, heard in his voice. Yes. It's, he
2: it's, would it's, call me to um, explain to me all the different things that this could be. And of course, that's disconcerting as a 36-year-old a uh, parent of two kids. Um luckily of course we have the great Mayo Clinic in our backyard and a lot of friends encouraged me to, to get a second opinion and I did. Um and I got the call from the Mayo oncologist and they were like not rare. In fact, most people under 40 do not breast cancer does not show up on a mammogram or an ultrasound. Um and luckily I had treatment there but that was sort of the start of my breast cancer journey.
0: Mm. Uh, as the conversation is happening with that uh, uh, initial doctor finding out you have a breast cancer, what do you remember thinking and, and feeling?
2: I remember being very numb. Um, I, at that time, my kids were five and seven. And, you know, as a parent, you don't worry about yourself. You worry about your kids. And all I'm thinking is, you know, um, am I going to see their wedding day? Am I going to see them grow up and get married and, and graduate high school and graduate college? Or, you know, it. Um and you know by that point I had known it was already pretty fast growing so it was I and I think for a lot of us breast cancer patients it's the unknown that's the hardest part mm-hmm. it's the figuring out what is this how far along am i what are my treatment options um by the time they did all of the testing i was stage 3b uh which means it was in my lymph nodes and it was in my skin so i i mean you're possibly looking at a very short lifespan um
0: and it's really scary Mm. your children at that age you referenced you you had been breastfeeding um how old were your children at the time of your diagnosis
2: five and seven so i was out of the breastfeeding which was sort of the yep um but they were old enough to know
0: right and two girls two girls and um We'll get a little bit to how you shared this with, with them in a moment, but I want to talk about the oncologist because the relationship with the oncologist is very key, both in terms of the the doctor's knowledge, but also the the personal relationship, the interactions. You shopped around for an oncologist, and and tell us more about why why you wanted to do that.
2: Um, well, it the actual the the first person who diagnosed me was a surgeon, a breast cancer surgeon, mm-hmm. um, and it, it kind of depends. Who you get right? A lot of the times, you just get somebody
0: who's available, and I got in because um, mm-hmm. you're thinking about scheduling. You just want to, you know, move ahead as soon as possible, as quickly. As- yeah, right? I mean, this urgency to to get it done. Right? Yes, mm-hmm.
2: yeah. Um, so I I actually through a professional organization, I knew somebody who was in the healthcare field, and who called up her friend at Mayo and was like, you know, we've got this girl. Can you help? And they called me,
0: and that's how I got in. All right. Um, Dr. Sherman, uh, breast cancer uh, diagnoses in younger women uh, have steadily uh, been increasing. That's according to the American Cancer Society. Uh, Do women in their 20s or 30s have reason to to be more vigilant about breast health, Uh, even though, you know, we're told we're not supposed to uh, get mammograms until the age of 40?
1: Correct. Well, and so part of it is also talking with your doctor, your primary care doctor. I think that was so important, talking with your primary care doctor about if there is something that is different, if something has changed, if someone feels a lump, it's really important to be evaluated. We know that it it's this risk of having breast cancer in young women and this increasing, um, this increasing incidence is gaining a lot of traction, not just we want to do things publicly, but also by, from the science standpoint. So the CDC has a program that they're really trying to help kind of make sure that women have the knowledge but also that we have more of a focus on getting research for younger women in breast cancer. Um, Some of the things to be important for women to be thinking about is: Do they have a family history? Mm-hmm. Is there any risk factors that they have for breast cancer? And and really, and if there is risk factors, are they things that they can modify to improve their risk factors?
0: And going back as we look uh, at history, where did where did that age recommendation of forty? Where did it even come from? I mean, why would you wait so long to get your first mammogram? Right.
3: Right.
1: So um, I, maybe kind of historically. We actually haven't had great screening for breast cancer for for a super long time, really. The use of screening mammograms really only started in the 19, mid-1970s, so it's only been about 50 years that we've even really been screening for breast cancer. And screening, any kind of screening technique, when we think about mammograms and MRIs, we need that technique to both be sensitive to pick up the illness that we're looking for, but we also need it. To be specific, so meaning that we're, um, we we don't want to be picking up so many things that we end up putting people in mm-hmm. harm's way. Right. So that's the big limitation that we have for young women. Is that for women, especially when when they're getting very young, in like at thirty five or, um, but especially below forty, being able to. That the breast tissue is so dense that it is difficult to see anything. And Mm -hmm. so it's not uncommon at all that a mammogram for somebody who is very young, that we won't be able to see it.
0: You mentioned dense. Uh, A lot of women are very aware like, oh, you have dense breast tissue. Uh, So tell us again what that means and what that does if you are getting a a mammogram.
1: So dense breast tissue, there's different structures within the breast, right? So, um, there's a fatting, there's the glands that produce milk, there's the support structures of the breast, and then there's fat cells. And fatty breast tissue makes it easier for us to see a breast cancer on a mammogram. Mm -hmm. So when there's a lot of dense breast tissue, so if there's a lot of gland structure, and especially for young women, um, if there's a lot of gland structure, it's just hard to see it. It's Mm -hmm. hard. there's, There's also some some suggestion, especially for older women, for dense breast tissue being a risk factor for breast cancer too. But there is is concern that it just basically it hides it. It obscures being able to see anything on a mammogram.
0: And we heard Laura say that a mammogram didn't show that anything was wrong. And then another option is to have an ultrasound. So talk to us about that that possibility that a mammogram may not show Mm -hmm. a problem.
1: Right, and this is an this is an area of focus of across in multiple different centers are doing research to try to find better imaging tools. And I, I suspect how we screen and how we image will probably change in the next three, five, ten years for mm-hmm. sure. I'm sure we're going to have changes. Um, the difficulty with so screening ultrasounds that they there's some there's some. Folks that have tried to do screening ultrasounds, the hard part is they don't always pick up. Just like with Laura's case, they don't also pick up every... If we have a test and it shows us that it's negative, we want to believe it, right? We want to be able to believe that that information is true. So we have some limitations. Right now, the best technique for young women for us to get imaging would be an MRI, an MRI... We need to be able to give contrast dye to be able to see things correctly on a, for to be able to pick up a breast cancer. So um, sometimes people will have allergic reactions to contrast dye. An MRI is a very tight space, so claustrophobia can be a big issue for MRIs. Timing, uh, it's a, it takes a long time. So especially if they're mm-hmm. in a tight space for a long time, that can be a challenge for individuals. And frankly, cost. And we, there are times that I meet with individuals that I say, I, I think you should get an MRI, but their insurance may not always
0: cover does it. Does not cover it. On, right. right. And my experience has been, you know, I'm 55, but, uh, you know, when I have a mammogram, I usually have to come back for an ultrasound because I have dense breast tissue. And they always ask, I like check with your insurance company, does it cover the ultrasound? Because people are often surprised, you know, they'll get a, a huge bill for it. And so that it, is that something that could change?
1: I hope so. I hope so. I, um, certainly there's been a lot of, there's both political pressure and and medical reasons for pressuring insurance companies to do a good job with getting screening done. Because if we're able to catch a breast cancer early, um, there's a lot of expense, a lot of physical expense to having chemotherapy. There's extra scans, there's extra procedures, the cost of the the medications themselves. Uh, and and certainly quality of life length of life the risk of having cancer recur all of those are better if we catch something early rather mm. than later.
0: Mm. Um, we're starting to get phone calls as we talk about breast cancer this wor- morning. Breast cancer in women. What does the diagnosis and treatment look like today compared to in the past? And how are women's lives affected as they become survivors? And are you aware that more younger women now are being diagnosed with breast cancer? You can call us and uh, share your questions, your stories. Are you a breast cancer survivor? What's the story behind your diagnosis and treatment? Give us a call at five. 651-227-6000. again. Six five one two two seven six thousand or eight hundred two four two twenty eight twenty eight. As we talk with uh, a breast cancer survivor and her oncologist, uh, let's take a, a phone call uh, in Farmington. Uh, Danielle is on the line. Good morning, Danielle. What did you want to tell us?
4: Hi, uh-huh. I am a third generation. Um, um, third generation diagnosed with breast cancer. I was diagnosed last year. Um, I'm now 43. I was 42. Um, mm-hmm. My grandmothers on both sides were passed away to breast cancer. My mother passed away to breast cancer. My aunt. And oh. My. I lost a college roommate to breast cancer, and my sister just lost her sister-in-law to breast cancer.
0: Oh, Danielle, my heart goes out to you. I'm so sorry.
4: Yep. on um, unlike my mother, which um, was she was diagnosed like 13, 14 years ago didn't have all the research with the genetics because genetics is still being researched. Um, I found out I had a genetic mutation called CHECK2 and so that ex- may, explains a lot of maybe what went down with the generation of my mom and my and my aunt and my grandmother. So, yeah, uh, every every six months I have to go in for a scan um, whether it's, a, it's alternating between a mammogram or an MRI um, uh, currently, I'm on tamoxifen. I had my surgery um, when I was found out. I was check two. A lot of decisions that had to be made whether I was going to have a lumpectomy or if I was going to have a total mastectomy, especially with my history, familial history. Mm-hmm. We decided at that period of time that um, lumpectomy was the way to go because I wasn't ready to face all the recovery options with uh, mm-hmm. full mastectomy.
0: Um, I can hear so much in your voice, but there has to be so much anxiety every six months. Danielle, you say you have to go in to be checked. Yes, again. Mm-hmm.
4: yes, every six months, lots of anxiety, <laughs> mm-hmm. lots and lots of anxiety.
0: And 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 are you know, what do you want uh, our, our listeners to know? Uh, maybe particularly young women, because you say you're forty three.
4: Yeah, mm-hmm. I they caught it on a routine mammogram. I've been having mammograms since I was thirty four, I think,
0: because of the family history
4: because of the family mm-hmm. history. So they mm-hmm. caught it on a mammogram.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Danielle, thank you for, for sharing uh, your story with us. And um, I appreciate you calling in. Uh, must be very difficult still to talk about all of this. Dr. Sherman, uh, what can you tell us again more about family history? Danielle mentioned her mother, her grandmother, and aunt.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, right. And actually, I heard her story, too, of of not having that information from decades ago is is also really important again our understanding of breast cancer it feels to me it feels like we're still in our infancy and I still think there's a lot more for us to understand we didn't understand really anything about the inherited piece the BRCA1 and BRCA2, which were the first breast cancer inherited genes discovered, was only only about 25 years ago now, a little bit more. Um, and so, and every few years, we learn a new inherited. Genetic predisposition. So, as recently as even about 15 years ago or 20 years ago, if somebody went in for genetic testing, they would have only been tested for BRCA1 and BRCA2. And now the number of inherited mutations has the ones that we know to screen for has increased dramatically. So, um, so it's not measured in not just one or two or even 10 or 20. It's much higher than that. And each inherited mutation can be associated with things besides breast cancer. So that's important too, that it can change, not only do we need to screen for breast cancer, how do we, you know, again, address the risk of breast cancer in the future? Is there things that we need to do to decrease that risk of breast cancer? But do we need to screen for other things, whether um, whether it's ovarian cancer, whether it's pancreas cancer? There are, with certain genetic inherited mutations, we screen for things that are not screened for in the general population.
0: Uh, Laura, I want to go back to your story. You mentioned um, when you got your diagnosis in 2021, you're 36 years old. Uh, At the time, you have two daughters who are five and seven at that time. Um, How did you talk with them about what you had just learned and what you knew you were likely going to be going through and and therefore they were going to be going through? What words words do you use?
2: Oh, um, I have probably a terrible sense of humor. But honestly, a sense of humor is really what gets you through a lot of this. Um, early on, I knew it was bad. I knew I was pretty far along. I knew there was a chance. Mm-hmm. I was in stage four. Um, I actually focused more on the physical aspect because I think I have curly hair and it's kind of a big deal in my house. And children and,
0: understand like visual things easily. Yeah, they get it. Right.
2: Yeah. So I was like, you know what? Mom has cancer. Here's what this means. It probably means my hair is going to be gone. And this is terrible. I knew I was going to have a double mastectomy. Um, and I knew I was going to stay flat. That was just my choice. And so I told them, I told them mom is getting her boobs chopped off. Which again, I mean, you have to see my face. It it, it was funny to them.
0: Right. But and then they they, they understand what that means. Yes. right. And, it and they're kinda, studying you to see how you're
2: telling them this. Yes. I think a big part was keeping it light and trying to keep that humor in because they know, you know, you would tell a, an adult, hey, I have cancer. And the look on their face is probably worse. You know, they get all of the information just from that one look. And so we tried to stop that as much as possible. It's fine. You know, mom's going to have fun. We're going to spend time together. It was, it was just going to be an experience. And that's how we looked at it. Because we didn't – I mean, you know, worst case scenario, I have stage four and a low quality of life. I – I want to spend that time being happy with my kids. And so that's how we looked at it.
0: What questions did they have for you initially?
2: Am I going to get it? I think that was a big mm. one. Um, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, and again, because they're you know, growing up to be like you. That's yes. Their,
0: yeah. Their model. And you mentioned the term you, you knew you were going to stay flat. What does that mean?
2: That means I did not get uh reconstruction or implants, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, you want to talk about what it's like to be a woman. W- women have boobs, you know, I, or breasts and it, a lot of people feel that way about it. But there's a big portion of us that don't get reconstruction. Um, And I, you know, for me, it was I didn't want any more surgeries. I didn't want any more Mm -hmm. complications. Um, I feel great.
0: We haven't mentioned your husband, you that you at that time uh, were married, but you became a single mother during this time, you ended your relationship with your husband. And so how did that affect what, what it was like for you to go through treatment?
2: I knew that at the beginning, I think. Um, And luckily, I have a huge network and turned chemo sessions into um, happy hours with my friends. And, you know, it's, I don't know, I think as a parent, and especially as a mom, you just do what you need to do. And Mm -hmm. that's all there was to it. And the only thing you could focus on was making sure that you come out of this on the other side healthy.
0: I've heard many stories of, you know, the romantic partner of a person going through this, that it is it. it it wreaks havoc on the relationship. It's understandable. Yes. But you have a huge support system. You always do. You do. And there's one that you wanted to mention, uh, a Facebook group called the Young Survival Coalition. Yep. Uh, Tell us about that. It's uh, other young breast cancer survivors in the Twin Cities. Uh,
2: I want to say that that's national. National? I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Um, I know there are a lot of great Facebook groups out there dedicated to um, young survivors. Mm -hmm. And uh, we kind of joke because, you know, I'm, you want to talk about age, I don't know how young I am at 38. Um, but you hear that a lot in breast cancer treatment. You're so young and it, you're too young for this. And what are you supposed to do with that? Right? I know. I, what does it mean? I don't I, you know. um, it's, it's different because you go through treatment at a young age and then you've got a good chunk of time
0: left after that. And um, maybe for many people they can relate they know someone's mother who had breast cancer or an aunt it's still associated with an older woman it is so it's someone what's shocking to people, Dr. Sherman, when you see a younger patient, do you approach treatment- treatment differently um do you have to take some additional considerations um in in you i mean do you have to consider this differently
1: absolutely well so first the biology can be very different because it can be related to an inherited predisposition and that's actually something we have to figure out pretty quickly because if a person is going to be undergoing surgery we want to know if there is a reason or if they if that's something that they want to explore doing doing a prophylactic mastectomy rather than doing a lumpectomy sometimes that that piece is really important for us to understand right away so there's the Biology of the cancer, but there's also a lot more when people are younger that we have to worry about. We have to worry about fertility. Um, so mm-hmm. if somebody clearly if they're in their late 60s with a breast cancer diagnosis, that's not even part of our conversation. But when somebody is in their 30s or earlier, so there's we do see breast cancer sometimes for women in their 20s, and we have to have that conversation of. How do we preserve fertility? What does that mean? Is it covered by insurance? Financially, this puts a huge burden on individuals um, from from the, the time lost from work, how it interrupts their career. There's so much to to go into that.
0: Mm -hmm. I want to take another phone call uh, from our listeners who are calling in. Again, we're talking about breast cancer. What does diagnosis and treatment look like today compared to in the past? Are you a breast cancer survivor? How has your cancer experience continued to affect you as a survivor? Call us at 651-227-6000 or you can call 800-242-2800. 28 in St. Paul. Kelsey is listening this morning. Good morning, Kelsey. And what did you want to share with us?
5: Good morning. Yes, I just wanted to uh, share. I actually was diagnosed twice. So I'm a two time breast cancer survivor. And one of those times was at the age of 27. 27 Um, recent uh, was this last year.
0: Okay. And how old are you now?
5: I'm 34. Okay.
0: Just so, so 27 and 34. And uh, is yep. it, did you have a family history or what do you know about your diagnosis?
5: Yeah. I actually have done genetic testing twice and I have no genetic carriers um, wow. at this time. Mm-hmm. And my grandmother was diagnosed about a year ago. So kind of
0: wrong hmm. timing. Hmm. And what has the journey been like finding uh, uh, doctors and, and getting support? Yeah,
5: it has been really quite interesting. Um, obviously, like the doctor just kind of described, it is a really unique experience to be of fertility age and get diagnosed because you have to go through all these really difficult questions about, you know, am I going to have children or not? We didn't have children yet at the age of 27. So um, it affected so many different things then. Um, if you were diagnosed uh, at the age of, like, 60.
0: And your relationship with with family and friends, when you've had to share the news, uh, the diagnosis, what has that been like, Kelsey? Yeah,
5: that uh, has been really interesting, especially doing it twice. Uh, People, of course, were so shocked at the beginning of my journey um, and kind of saying, oh, my gosh, like, how could this be? Like, you're so young. And, Uh, getting diagnosed the first time was excruciatingly difficult because of um, doctors just kind of not really believing it in a lot of ways. They were like, oh, you're too young. It's fine. So it was really hard.
0: So uh, two diagnoses. So what happened you had, did you have surgery the first time or go through chemo and radiation or what happened that you had, you know, that it came back and you had a second diagnosis?
5: Yeah, the first, Uh, Diagnosis. I had, uh, I was diagnosed uh, with stage 3B. Um, So, uh, I'm so sorry. I, this is embarrassing. I need to get going to work. Okay.
0: It's it's all right. (laughs) Uh, Well, are you doing, you're doing well now? It sounds like you're fine now emotionally you yeah. sound very strong yeah. yeah so sorry i have to get going but, okay i'll um, let you go that, that's chair. kelsey in saint paul uh dr sherman a woman diagnosed at the age of 27 and then uh again at uh, 30 she's 34 now um what do right. you hear in kelsey's uh her journey
1: right well and it, it it sounded like she might she might have been about to start that it there is a lot to trusting your instinct i think is a as an individual to say something's not right. And if you feel like the communication with your, your doctors, your care team isn't quite right to, to, to make sure that you give yourself that permission Mm -hmm. to say, I I need to get further information. I need to make sure that I, I get that the, the tests done that need to happen and that you feel comfortable with that. And I think, um, again, it sounds like mm, that she doesn 't have a genetic predisposition, but there 's clearly a risk factor to have mm-hmm. breast cancer twice,
6: mm-hmm. so
1: i i 'm hoping that her doctors i 'm sure have kind of said okay well, what what could that be because there 's risk factors for things that we can control and things that we can 't so in, in in addition to the inherited predisposition, if somebody if they had had say lymphoma as Uh, as a young adult or as a child, some lymphoma treatments give radiation to the chest, and that really increases the risk of breast cancer for women, and especially young breast cancers. So kind of knowing what their personal medical history has been, from the genetic standpoint, Certainly, people can meet with genetic counselors and without having, like, you don't have to have a breast cancer diagnosis to meet with a genetics counselor. So if somebody has a strong family history, they can they can always meet with a genetics counselor and see if genetic testing can get covered by their insurance or or, frankly, if they have to pay out of pocket, what that would look like for them. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I know that within the health partner system right now, that there is a test called My Genetics. It's a study, um, and as part of that My Genetics, there's multiple different things that it's testing for. But two of the things that are on that list that they're testing for is the BRCA1 and the BRCA2 gene mutation. So especially if people have kind of wondered, you know, like my family's got seems to have a lot of breast cancer, or especially if there's ovarian cancer. Um, it's something to consider as having genetic testing even without a cancer diagnosis.
0: And Dr. Sherman, we're going to take a news break in just a moment, but I want to uh, get to this uh, question uh, before we do that. We talk a lot about racial disparities uh, and disparities mm-hmm. in healthcare care uh, on this program. And just a couple of days ago, uh, a network television news anchor, CNN Sarah Seidner, announced her own stage three breast cancer diagnosis. Uh, Sarah is a black woman. And in her announcement on the air, she pointed out that black women with breast cancer in the U.S. have a 40% higher mortality rate than white women. And so I also know that black women are more likely to be diagnosed with a type of breast cancer that is more aggressive. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit more about what is known about black women in breast cancer?
1: Right. So um, the, it's the biology of that very commonly for breast cancer for, for African-American women that they will have a triple negative breast cancer. Um, there are huge advances really even just within the past few years um, for these triple negative breast cancers. So I, there I, there really is hope on the horizon, but it, it, that disparity needs to be addressed, and that's part of um, there's also ongoing research to really try to see if we can figure out where, why, if there's a genetic component, is there, is there, how can we address this in a better
0: fashion? Let's bring in a caller in Edina this morning. Julie is listening. Julie, thank you for calling in. And what did you want to share with us?
6: Well, I was diagnosed with breast cancer in early October, and I did just have my fourth chemo treatment yesterday, mm-hmm. but I've been, mm-hmm. I have totally eliminated alcohol from my diet. I wasn't drinking much. I was having a beer while I watched the news like maybe four times a week. Mm -hmm. But um, there is a direct connection between alcohol consumption and cancer. And now Ireland, I think it was a year or two years ago, became the first country in the world to insist that a warning label go on alcoholic beverages. And I really think that that is necessary and needed. Breast cancer is one of the cancers that, is noted with that connection a lot, but there are other forms of cancer. Hmm. Uh, You know, ideally it would be on all alcoholic beverages, but I think doing something like that on the federal level, I don't know if we could do that, but it would be so great if the state of Minnesota required um, signage at places where people purchase alcohol or in restaurants so that that was known.
0: Thank you. Oh, Julie and Adina, thank you for calling and and bringing that up and sharing your story. We wish you well. Uh, Dr. Sherman, what do we need to know about the connection between alcohol and breast cancer?
1: Right. I actually, I'm thrilled that Julie called in and mentioned mm-hmm. that because it it is a really important risk factor and one that I'm not sure really gets uh, discussed nearly as often as it should um, because even things that from a societal standpoint would seem normal, like one drink per week dramatically increases the risk of woman's breast cancer. So moderate alcohol consumption. So this isn't Certainly, for people who have very heavy alcohol use, they have a, even a higher risk of breast cancer, but um, moderate alcohol consumption can increase the risk of breast cancer by 30 to 50 percent, so that's, wow. a, that's a huge number. Um, and again, there's um, sometimes from a societal standpoint, there uh, sometimes the TV doctors that talk about a glass of red wine a day for heart health, and I'm like, "No, don't do that." Um, you know that it depends on what your other risk factor. Are so alcohol consumption um, for women who are older. Um, we know that obesity really increases their risk of breast cancer. Again, there's some other like having having regular physical activity, a healthy diet. All of those things are really important to talk with your with your with a primary care doctor even before a cancer
0: diagnosis. Let's take another phone call. This one in Proctor. This is Meg on the phone. Good morning, Meg. What do you want to ask or share as we talk about breast cancer?
7: Good morning. I just want to reiterate the the. I can't emphasize enough the importance of self-advocacy and self exams. Mm-hmm. I know that our breasts are so nebulous. Mine are, are dense and fibrous. But the, the point about the self-exams is that we get to know our breasts so that when something changes, we know that something's different, and mm-hmm. I have found every lump that I've ever had, and I found my breast cancer, and I actually knew it was breast cancer when I found it because it was different from the other lumps that I had found. And going hand-in-hand hand with that, um, advocacy is just so important all the way through. I consulted with two different oncologists or surgeons, actually, to discuss how they would handle the, um, the surgery and, uh, chose one who was farther away, but who was really sensitive to to hearing me and the importance to me of, of how my breast cancer and my, um, surgery would be handled to, um, to keep me feeling as, as quote normal as possible. And that, um, that's a really important piece too again um i my breast cancer was estrogen and progesterone responsive or positive mm-hmm. so that led me down a whole path in terms of um taking tamoxifen i suffered some uh, impacts of or side effects of tamoxifen which i am positive that somebody somewhere including the incredibly tiny print on the very large piece of paper on the box a uh, bottle uh of the tamoxifen um reviewed all the possible uh, side effects, but um, the, the blood clots were not one that I was aware of, and I, I encountered those almost to my depth. Mm. And again, it was only through self-advocacy with multiple practitioners to say something is wrong, something is wrong. Um, so
0: I, I appreciate I can't uh, Meg, it enough. Yeah, uh, knowing your breasts and and your the self exams and 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 Meg, yeah. did did you do yours in the shower or what was your practice?
7: You know, I don't do them in the shower. Uh, I think I started that practice back in my twenties. I found mine when I was forty nine. Uh, my cancer. Uh, I'm now 56 as a mm-hmm. badass cancer survivor. Nice. I found that for me lying down in bed or lying down on the couch, that was just a better place for me um, to be able to to do that self-exam mm-hmm. uh, of the breast and, of course, also of your armpits as well.
0: Armpits. Thank you. Meg and Proctor, and uh, Meg, wishing you well as as well with, with your health in the in the years to come. Uh, Dr. Sherman, talk to us about self-exams, when and how do you do them? Uh, how do you advise your patients? <laughs> I, start, right. I think I'm doing one right now, <laughs> Laura. It's right. right. like coaching me, like, you do it like um, this. <laughs>
1: so. So I'm gonna. I'll start by saying there's 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 times that we sometimes go off of what guidelines say. So there was a big trial that was done. Um, it was actually done overseas, where they trained women to do self exams and tried to do it the best way possible. And actually, um, it's usually because you're trying to trap the breast tissue to find that that lump to find that mass. So laying down and being able to trap that if you're because you have it's best to have one arm up over the head because then that's going to pull that breast tissue apart or, you know, kind of lengthen it out over the chest wall. And then being able to try to trap that breast tissue against from the skin against your rib cage. Um, so laying down is a good way to do that. Um,
0: and the so armpit. It, we heard the college mm-hmm. mention mentioned, check your armpit. Yeah. correct. Why, why is that? Because that's a.
1: So we have, well, so the breast tissue actually can extend up into the armpit. So the breast tissue actually almost has, it almost looks like a Halley's comet. It has like a little tail that that Mm. goes up into that space. But also, too, we have lymph nodes and the... Breast, if somebody has a breast cancer, they can have a very small one that's not something that they can feel in the breast tissue, and not just, not just people at home, but sometimes physicians can't. Even though we know it's there from an MRI or a mammogram or an ultrasound, we can know there's a breast cancer there, but we can't always feel it because it can be so small. But sometimes we can feel the lymph nodes. Mm -hmm. So lymph nodes can be um, where breast cancer cells can spread to. And because the lymph nodes are really kind of right underneath the surface, of the skin in the armpit, that's a good place to, that's also an important piece. So again, if we look at that, I mentioned that clinical trial that was done overseas, and basically on that clinical trial, they didn't find that people were more likely to find their breast cancer. But the hard part is, is there's still, I I 100% agree with advocacy. There is, there's absolutely no downside for people doing a self-exam, right? They, you're not exposing yourself to radiation, you're not exposing yourself to any kind of Harmful chemicals, and I've had plenty of patients who have found their own breast cancers, especially young women. And, and so Meg, I do Meg, think it's really important?
0: Megan Proctor said, "Know your breasts, like so. Correct. So then you can tell when something is different. So the, the frequency of the self exams—once a month or once—I mean, how frequently should we check?
1: So so ideally um I when back I'm I'm old enough that back when I was in medical school we really did try to have encourage women to do self exams and it really the more often somebody can have a self exam, the more mm-hmm. likely they are to say, Okay, this is different. Why mm-hmm. is this changed? Mm-hmm. So really having it be at least about once a month would be ideal.
6: Okay.
1: But um and Laura it, you're not you like mm-hmm. Yeah. So but if you feel like something's changed, even if you haven't been doing it every month, say, but I, this doesn't seem like it was before. Still get
0: it checked out. And Laura, remind it, how did you notice something was different or that maybe you needed to go talk to a doctor?
2: Well, the the clear discharge out of the nipple was the first thing. But the, I mean, self-exams, I remember hearing, you know, a lot of people talk about it. And you're like, I'm not doing this right. What am I supposed to? But the fact that I mean, the caller said it, you get to know your breast so that when something is weird, that's when you're like, yeah, right. I got to go in.
0: And Dr. Sherman talked to me about the clear discharge out of the, the breast. What is that?
1: Right. So, um outside of breastfeeding, we would not expect there to be nipple discharge. And so if there's sometimes it can be clear, sometimes people can have bloody discharge, It can be shades of brown because it can be kind of more of an old blood. But whenever there's nipple discharge, and if you're not breastfeeding, it should be checked out.
0: All right, let's take another phone call uh, from a listener as we talk about breast cancer, what we need to know. Uh, In St. Louis Park, Linda is on the phone. Linda, thank you for waiting. Go right ahead. What do you want to share with us? Linda, are you there? We can hear you. Can you yeah, go yes, right ahead. Can you hear me? Yes, I can.
3: Okay. Uh, okay, so I was 49 when I was diagnosed. Um, there was no family history as far as I know. Perhaps a grandmother or a great aunt might have, but we don't know that history. Um, anyway, I was stage one estrogen positive. I am now 74, so I'm a 22 or 23-year-old survivor. Hmm. What I want to say is my treatment was um, a lumpectomy with radiation, six weeks of radiation, followed by a year of tamoxifen. Um, I, The radiation, um, my gastroenterologist believes, might have caused gastrointestinal problems. I had maybe five to seven years following treatment because I developed gastroparesis and Barrett's esophagus and... One of the main causes of gastroparesis is chest radiation. Hmm. Um, so it's possible that the radiation wasn't as focused as it could have been. I am grateful that I'm still here and that I did have treatment. Um, it's been a problem. I still have digestive issues, however, um, because of those, um, because of the gastroparesis, et cetera.
0: Um, And Linda, you're 74 now, so you have had uh, many years since this diagnosis.
3: Yes, and and so I am very grateful, and I've worked a lot on digestion and changing my diet, and mm-hmm. you know I'm basically a health fanatic. <laughs> mm.
0: Linda, there, um, and, and, so, and Linda, I want to get to some other other phone calls, and also um, I want to make sure, Laura, you you wanted to talk about um, some things that have not gone ideally in your treatment um, in in the last few years. You said that you were over-treated. What does that mean? Um, that's
2: and Dr. Sherman, I think, can help with this. Um, I. When you get diagnosed with breast cancer, they test you for hormones. So um, these women are talking about estrogen positive, hormone positive. Um, These are the types of cancer that you can have. So Mm -hmm. I was what they call HER2 positive, um, which is actually a good breast cancer to have. And uh, slightly what they call weak positive, so under 20% positive, estrogen. Um, The reason that that's good to know is because there's two separate treatments for each of those. So I was treated for HER2 cancer positive breast cancer, which was cancer or sorry, chemo, surgery, radiation. Mm -hmm. And the second half was tamoxifen, um, which honestly, I would rather do chemo again for five years than do tamoxifen. Um, But you're left with all of these side effects. Mm -hmm. Um, If my treatment, if my cancer comes back, it won't be estrogen positive, which is the treatment that has given me osteoporosis as a Mm -hmm. 38 year old. Um, But, you know, for a long time, they just want you to be treated and to not have cancer, but as a thirty eight year old I am now left with what, forty years of
0: side effects. Right. Doctor Sherman, what do we need to know about like right. what life is like after the diagnosis, maybe after the treatment that, you know, that you say right. to to women to so that they're prepared for what could come next.
1: Yeah, that's I mean that's a big part of the survivorship is the long term complications of the treatments that we do and again part of why if First, if we could prevent cancer from ever happening, if we could identify who is at risk beforehand and make sure that we can um, have the, the lifestyles to be and risk, de- decrease the risk as much as we can would be so important. And I, especially th- uh, the further we get into our understanding of breast cancer, we are better to Understand who needs what kinds of treatments, so even as recently as fifteen years ago, basically every person who had stage one breast cancer um, you know with it was either estrogen receptor positive or it wasn't and the, that was the big deciding factor and Now we have the ability for most breast cancers to get pretty sophisticated Gene testing to see what the gene signature of that individual breast cancer can be like for to say what's going to be the actual benefit of doing is there are there certain treatments that we should use? Are there things that we should not use? Is there going to be a benefit by using that so that we're not over treating individuals and leaving them with long term side effects?
0: Dr. Sherman, what are you most excited about as you uh, read about learn about uh, research that is happening now with breast cancer? What is on the horizon that it makes you feel optimistic that it will be better in the years ahead?
1: The, I, the, I, to me, the biggest optimism is really being able to differentiate that there are so many different subtypes of breast cancer. So not all breast cancers is- Are the same. So estrogen receptor positive breast cancers should be treated very differently than people who have triple negative breast cancers. And even going steps beyond that, for these gene signatures to really be able, I'm um, to be able to see what will work best for certain individuals. Maybe how their body metabolizes these medications. That's something that I'm hopeful Mm -hmm. is on the horizon. Maybe that's a farther horizon um, hope than than other components, but to be able to ind- really individualize these treatments so that people have the best outcomes, that their cancers go away and never come back, mm-hmm. but they're also not left with long-term complications from the treatments that weren't necessary.
0: Laura, in our last 30 seconds here, there may be someone listening who was just recently diagnosed, or certainly we know many survivors are listening. What
2: What do you want people to know? Talk about it. Ask questions. Mm-hmm. Um I think a lot of us, you know, cancer is a weird thing and triggering, but um, together I think we can help each other advocate and, um, you know, you're not alone. Mm. You're not alone. Right.
0: All right. Well, thank. Uh, I want to thank both of our guests for uh, your time this morning. I know I learned a lot, and and recognize there's a lot I did not know about breast cancer. So thank you for being willing to talk about it, and thank you to our our listeners who called in to share your stories. Our guest today, Laura Gutierrez, a breast cancer survivor diagnosed in 2021 when she was just 36 years old, and Dr. Melissa Sherman, a medical oncologist and hematologist with health partners, also one of Laura's doctors. This conversation was produced by Gretchen Brown. Be safe, everybody. I'll talk to you again tomorrow morning at nine. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.